and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the spread of anti-racism protests from the United States to Europe, what it means for the transatlantic relationship. We're going to look at what is happening in America, what Europeans are actually protesting about, how these protests are perceived in Europe and what it also means for the cultural relationship between the United States and Europe going forwards. And I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast to make sense of these issues. Speaking from Washington, we have Spencer Boyer, who is the director of the Washington office of the Brennan Center for Justice and a former official from the Obama administration who worked on Europe and transatlantic relations. From Berlin, we have Omid Nuripur, who is a member of the German Bundestag, a spokesperson for the Green Party on foreign affairs, and also an ECFR council member. And from Paris, we have Tara Varma, who is the head of ECFR's office and a senior policy fellow. So I think Everybody who's not been hiding under a rock for the last week has heard of George Floyd and many people will have watched the traumatic video of his death and will have seen some of the violence that's erupted in Washington and across the United States of America. But maybe we can go to you first, Spencer, and and tell us where you think we are now and what it means, particularly for for Europeans who are trying to understand what the future of the US is going to look like after these protests and, and also what it means for the whole idea of the West. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I think it's important to start with the fact that the protests that we're seeing today are not an isolated incident. It isn't just about the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police in such a visible way, uh, although that was probably a tipping point. Uh, these protests are coming after years of increasing attention surrounding violence against people of color in America by the police and a lack of accountability for its perpetrators. We've seen a number of incidents, again, over the last several years that have gotten a lot of attention, not only the killing of unarmed black people, but also the killings of blacks and other people of color by vigilantes, by those who are self-appointed guardians of neighborhoods. Um, We saw just a couple of weeks ago the incident in Central Park with Amy Cooper, who was weaponizing, I think, her white privilege in a way against another man who was just asking her to follow the rules and to put her dog on a leash in Central Park in the area that she was supposed to, and her threatening to call the police and then eventually calling the police and filing a a really false report about her being threatened by him. So I think all of these things, together with the environment that we're having in the United States right now under a president that many view as condoning this kind of racism and white nationalism, who is often weaponizing, I think, race in a way to appeal to his base in terms of policies, not just at the southern border, but also in terms of his travel bans and rhetoric he uses on social media, uh, really caused this explosion of protest across the United States. And most of it has been nonviolent, peaceful protest across all the states in the United States. Obviously, there was some violent protest as well. Number of curfews uh, imposed across the nation uh, and the president, I think, 
overreacting in many instances in terms of uh, his calling on, on the National Guard and, and others to push back and his rhetoric of law and order in response to it. I think this was all really encapsulized in his removal of protesters you know, in front of the White House in order for him to go do a photo op in front of a church uh, holding a Bible. I'll let some of our other guests talk a little bit more about some of the response in Europe, but we've obviously seen an outpouring of support uh, across Europe for George Floyd that are demanding justice uh, and change in the United States. But it's not just about the United States. It's also focusing attention on domestic racial injustice in their respective countries. Thanks, Spencer. Maybe we could go to Germany next, because that was the place that's reported to have had the largest demonstrations outside the US last Friday. And over the weekend, there were more protests that took place, inspired the corona crisis, 15,000 people apparently went to Berlin, Alexanderplatz, 14,000 in Hamburg, 20,000 in Dusseldorf. And the largest gathering was reported to have taken place in Munich with uh, over 25,000 participants in the Marienplatz. Omid, what are these protests about? I thought we were living in a, in a post-American Europe. Is this about solidarity with people in America or is it about domestic racism or is something else going on? I think that obviously um, because of people being shocked having seen these pictures of, of police brutality. And of course, it's about racism uh, also uh, in, in Germany. Next to my constituency, there is a city named Hanau. We had a, a racist a terror attack a couple of months ago uh, where uh, 10 people had been killed by, by a racist. Uh, so this country is now starting to discuss awareness on and then racism in a higher level, I'm, I'm happy with that. But it's, of course, about George Floyd also, and it's about a lot of people who are accepting more from from, from the society like the American one and, and who don't want to get disappointed by, by a democracy, not only by, by seeing these pictures, but also by having a president who is just pouring more and more gas in that fire. So this is obviously uh, also the reason why people go to the protest. But I think there is a last reason also. For the last three months, uh, my country has been fully occupied with itself and then the corona situation and the pandemic. But people were aware at the time that the axis of the planet is shifting during the, the pandemic. And, and, and now it's the first, you know, something like a, like first a boost of, of attention for, for an issue which is abroad, which is an international one. So this is not only a protest against uh, racism, this is also a protest against uh, people like President Trump weakening international cooperation. Omid, you come from uh, an immigration background yourself. I mean, to what extent do you think that Germany is using what's happening in America to think through some of the complicated facets of its own emerging identity? I mean, a lot of the people who were protesting in, in Germany were came from a Turkish background, from other backgrounds. There were obviously a lot of black people there as well, but it did seem to be something which was part of some quite painful debates that have been going on in Germany for a long time about the nature of Germanness. You know, th this is not the first time we're discussing this uh, racism in Germany. We had this issue for a couple of times. Unfortunately, every time someone died because of racism, there had been some kind of debate about that. Uh, people who are affected of that are just fed up of that, just getting solidarity calls after people are dying. This is the first time, because of the American discussion now, we are discussing institutional racism. We are discussing uh, the question of racism among policemen. We had a special operational uh, soldier 
a few weeks ago being arrested because uh, he was uh, preparing Nazi terrorism in, in Germany. Finally, it's not about just madman killing people and okay, let's call it racist or not. This is about, of course, the institutional uh, racism we have in this country, like we have it all across Europe and also, of course, in the United States. But the good thing is that now finally we we can start a debate on that and hopefully we're going to sustain the debate and get some institutional results also. So, Tara, should we turn to the situation in France, where I think almost as many people have been demonstrating as in, in Germany and where there also seems to be a big domestic element, partly because of, of some of the also long-standing debates about French Republican values, which make the question of race, even asking the question, is quite political in France. Yes, absolutely. France is living uh, a strange situation right now. So I would say first, it's a confluence of events that led to the demonstrations that we saw. As you know, French people are known for demonstrating on social issues, but on race issues, actually, that doesn't happen that often. And so the confluence of George Floyd's killing, a call from the committee called Justice for Adama Traoré, who was a 24-year-old young black construction worker who was killed in 2016, probably at the hands of the police, and the fact that there was a release by several media of um, WhatsApp group between police officers exchanging racist messages, basically all of that last week and in the past 10 days, sparked the protests that were initially banned. Because even though the lockdown has been lifted in France, uh, there is still a formal ban on meetings in public with so many people. But the state had initially forbidden uh, for people to meet and they realized that they could not go through with the ban. And so they allowed for basically 20,000 people to meet. And the fact that the demonstration was so large actually sparked a deeper structural debate in France about what it means to be French. And what we're seeing now, and I think this is, this is going to be both very complicated and interesting in, in the coming months, is clearly the demystification of the idea that France has of itself as a neutral and colorblind republic. As you know, our motto is liberté, égalité, fraternité. So that would be freedom, equality and fraternity. But what we're seeing today is that there are a number of people in France who feel like they are second-class citizens and that even having this sort of a conversation because of the color of their skin it was basically not possible. What is being questioned right now is truly how we've been thinking of ourselves as French people, which is that the French, I was going to the French identity, but it's actually the French nationality should trump any of our other identities. And so that would be other origins that we have, religions, political affiliation, sexual orientation, passion for fiction or nonfiction. All of these are part of our identities. But the traditional vision that France has of its French citizens is that their nationality should trump everything else. And I think we might be moving towards, I mean, this is at least what I am hoping and, and what I will fight for also on a personal level, that we still fight for universalism, but a universalism of the 21st century, which is that we all have multiple identities and that does not make us weaker, that actually makes us stronger in knowing who we are. And you just wrote an op-ed which took quite a personal take on these issues. Do you want to say a bit more about what you were arguing in that? Sure. I, I wrote it yesterday. So I, I took this uh, new position as the head of the office almost a year ago now. And I find myself regularly in meetings with decision makers in France. And we talk about 
uh, strategic, interesting topics such as European sovereignty, European strategic autonomy, the future of the transatlantic relationship. And I often stand out in the room because I'm often the only woman. Uh, I have a very strange name <laughs> in France. You know, I have a strange color of a skin. Clearly, I stand out usually in the room. And almost systematically, the question comes up to me while we are having a serious discussion of where I come from. And it's not always bad. It's just that I, the question that it poses while we are in a professional context, what I felt was that it was questioning my, my legitimacy of being there. The idea of where I come from had nothing to do with the topic that we were discussing. And it seemed to me as incongruous as if we were asking someone what their sexual orientation would be in that meeting. And that would seem very strange. And it doesn't happen. But what does happen is that people ask me where I come from. And I find myself justifying the fact that I was born in France, that I'm French, that I have Indian origins. And, and it's, I've come to accept and to admit to myself that I have profoundly disliked those situations because I'm very comfortable with being French. And I think that the fact that I have multiple identities doesn't make me less French. It actually makes me more French. I feel that I should be able to say that, to write it, and to help people understand how it makes me feel when this is, my whole identity is being questioned. So I think it's been very interesting to hear how this is playing out in different places. I mean, I suppose one of the questions which we should look at as a foreign policy think tank is what this is going to mean for the transatlantic relationship as well. When President Obama was elected, it was an event that greeted with enormous enthusiasm right across the, the European Union. And his election was, was seen as a sort of symbol of an America that was coming, that was making peace with its history and that was embracing the future in a completely different way. And I think that a lot of the images coming out of Washington and other American cities over the last couple of weeks have raised profound questions in many European minds about, about the future of the United States. How do you think, Spencer, as somebody who's both thinking a lot about the future of American politics, but also the transatlantic relationship. What do you think happens to, how do you think this is going to affect transatlantic relations? Sure. I just want to make one one quick comment on the, the last guest's remarks about France and identity and multiple identities. It just reminded me of one of my first experiences with the police in Europe when I was living in France between college and law school and, and was walking around with my hood up and, and looking, you know, like a college student, but uh, I guess people had told me, don't put your hood up in, in France when you're walking around, you get stopped by the police. I put my hood up and about one minute later, two police cars stopped and came out. And, you know, the only thing they asked me, they said, you know, vous venez du? Like, where are you from? And I, I said I was from the United States. And they're like, oh, so sorry. Uh, they got back in their car and they left, even though, you know, at the time, you know, they didn't ask for my papers. They didn't ask anything else. They just really wanted to know where I was from. And it was one of the first moments that I started really thinking more deeply about the differences in terms of identities, multiple identities, and, and some of the challenges that we face in the United States on the color line and being founded on these color distinctions through slavery and how they play out differently in different places. On the transatlantic point, I think that uh, it certainly makes 
our situation, which is already tough, even tougher in terms of how we are viewed in Europe. Uh, the transatlantic relationship, as everyone on this call knows, is in crisis in terms of having a president who has been very disdainful of Europe, of NATO, of uh, other Euro-Atlantic institutions, having people question whether or not we actually believe in the European project in a way that every other president of both parties has. We have challenges on policy fronts uh, from everything from from Iran to climate change. And I think that seeing this moment in the United States and seeing the leadership in the United States doing nothing to try to bring us together and tamp down the tensions and actually stoking these tensions for political purposes uh, certainly diminishes America's moral authority, you know, it's already really been diminished by a lot of our stances relating to immigration border, our treatment of asylum seekers, uh, as well as obviously our ban on travel from uh, Muslim majority countries and other things. But I think that the violent response that the president was really encouraging uh, is going to make it a a lot harder for us, not just with our adversaries, um, but also in terms of our friends of being a, a moral authority on democracy, human rights and justice issues. Uh, and I don't think that that's something that is going to be easily dealt with just by a change of administration. What do you think, Ahmed? I mean, Germany is a country whose entire post-war identity has been founded around the transatlantic relationship on regaining its kind of western orientation but yeah it, it seems to be one of the countries in europe where the public has been the most skeptical about uh american foreign policy not just under trump but in fact with snowden and a whole series of, of things which have, have mean that younger germans don't have quite the same emotional engagement with the U.S. as, as their parents did. First of all, I'm happy that uh, Spencer had this good experience with, with our policemen here. I hope uh, you're going to get the same experience when he asks you where you're from and you say Gabun or Gambia. Second, I fully agree with everybody said that there always has been some kind of a skepticism of, of American foreign policy. But I think this, there's a huge opportunity now to network and uh, to bring people together who have the same values, who are fighting racism, who are working for solidarity within societies and, and obviously not, not only in the national level. So we have a lot of discussions in Germany on, on, on racism. I think there's a lot of things we can learn from the United States, how to manage it, how to fight racism and how not to manage it and not to fight racism. I think this is a very crucial moment in our histories to bring people together. And this would not only mean that we can learn a lot and, and, and fight racism much more efficiently, but also reconstruct our, our friendship, which, to be honest, had been damaged, not only, but especially in the last seven years. And do you think that we will be in a position to just snap back to where we were beforehand if Biden is elected, Omid? No, definitely not. Uh, definitely not. Uh, it's it's uh, obviously the, the past is gone. I some people call me a philosopher. No, it's obvious that there is uh, no way back to to the status quo ante. It's obvious that uh, the axis of the planet is shifting rapidly. Eight years ago, we did not have that kind of a, a systematic rivalry with, with with China, which has been announced by their sides also. Obviously, there, the, the times are changing. And obviously, there is much more uh, homework for the Europeans on their own to do in these days. 
Spencer, if you as you kind of think about the Biden administration, what do you think is going to happen to the transatlantic relationship? Do you think that the fact that there is a new face in the White House and a different, less dismissive attitude towards allies is going to be transformative? Or do you think it's going to be quite tricky for for a Biden administration coming in to deal with with a lot of the big issues which have been dividing Europe from America, whether it's over China, digital policy, climate change, all issues where Congress is as much of a a challenge as, as the administration? Well, I certainly think that things will get better. Um, as Omid was saying, it's not going to bounce back automatically. There's still going to be challenges. And I think a lot of the trust has been broken. But I certainly believe that a new administration and um, how um, Vice President Biden has been talking about the importance of the transatlantic relationship, how he would uh, view the importance of the alliance much differently, his support for the EU, for NATO, uh, and understanding that we can't deal with any of these major challenges in the world without our closest partners will make a difference in terms of, of tone and, I think, having at least people stop thinking that we don't understand why Europe is so important to U.S. security. But obviously, the devil is in the details on a lot of the policy issues, and it will take some time for us to, I think, deal with a lot of the damage that's been done in the in the Trump administration. Uh, and there's also the problem in the United States of rebuilding our institutions, State Department, Defense Department, our intelligence community, uh, and other agencies have really, I think, been gutted and uh, had terrific senior civil servants who have left in frustration or been chased out. And so I think that that is going to also make a big difference in terms of how long it takes us to get back to the strength that I think we were in during the Obama administration. And there's one point on on Omid's comment. Yes, I totally uh, understand what you're saying in terms of being in France or anywhere else and saying I'm from Gabon or Cameroon and so forth. And that was probably one of the biggest things that I learned earlier on was that there were some advantages to being an African-American in Europe in terms of some of the conceptions about uh, identity and what that meant in certain countries. And, you know, not something that I think is a positive thing uh, in terms of some of those distinctions that were made with me versus uh, many others. What do you think about this question about the future of the relationship, Tara? I think the core of the question is uh, how do we defend the West and whether we want to defend the West? Do we believe as European and transatlanticists that free elections, free press, the capacity to hold uh, debate with contradictory ideas uh, is paramount to us? I think, especially us in in the think tank world, uh, we do believe that this is important. The United States is in a complicated place right now. The elections in November may change the the course of how things are going. And I don't think that the EU can replace the US per se, but the, the EU certainly has a new role to endorse and to be able to defend a free and open society in which we can accept that sometimes there there is racism in the police force there is police brutality and the only way to fight that is to acknowledge it and to give proper training to those in need. And I think this is at the heart of what we are defending right now. And I think things can get better in November once the election is passed. But beyond the election, I think the EU needs to think about the place it wants to have in the world. 
One thing I've been wondering about is how these changed perceptions of the US also change the European debate about our own future. So, Omid, you're sitting in Berlin where your your finance minister has been talking a lot recently about Europe having a, a Hamiltonian moment, which is, you know, a kind of very traditional way of thinking about the European project, seeing it through the prism of, of the, the American experience, seeing European integration as a prelude to um, a United States of Europe. But do you think the fact that many Europeans looking out at across the Atlantic see a country which is so profoundly troubled domestically and seems almost on the kind of verge of a new civil war is changing attitudes towards the idea of a federal future in fact maybe even making people more skeptical about even wanting a Hamiltonian moment I think the major lesson we can learn is uh, it's important to to keep the union together and not uh, just leave those people when who are trying to polarize the continent and the political landscape here. This is, I think, much more important than the question of integration being a bad idea. It's the best idea we ever had in Europe. So uh, to me, obviously, it's not about saying that bringing different states together is a good idea or a bad idea. It's a question of how to come to a culture of political debate, which is not harming democracy. Spencer, one of the big uh, questions on everyone's mind is is what the, I mean, the human implications of, of what's going on are obviously enormous, both for Mr. Floyd's family, but also it's brought a spotlight on so many other people's experiences you described earlier. What do you think the, the kind of electoral political implications are going to be? Is this going to be something which actually is a game changer? Are we going to look back at this as an important moment in terms of the election in November, or is this simply something that polarizes people according to partisan lines and and reinforces their their pre existing perspectives before the the crisis erupted? I think this could be a game changer. Uh, quite honestly, you're seeing polling now that uh, uh, Americans' views about race, about the um, unfair treatment of African Americans in a justice system in which. Your black Americans are three times more likely to be killed by the police than white Americans. They're 1.3 times more likely to be unarmed than white Americans when they're killed by police. Police officers um, who kill in the line of duty are not charged 99 out of 100 times. And of course, many of those instances might be legitimate, but many are not. And I think people are starting to understand this, the conversations that are happening in the United States, not just nationally in Congress and uh, in state legislatures, but also in private offices. I, I don't know anybody who isn't in an organization where there's not discussions about this uh, at a macro and micro level. So I think that that is showing that this has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, and then, of course, Congress and state legislatures, city councils are all taking up uh, bills and looking at ways to deal with this issue and try to uh, figure out how to stop the militarization of the police, roll back some of the more abusive police tactics used to subdue individuals that are not necessary, and talking a lot about resources and um, what police officers and police departments should be asked to do and what they shouldn't do. Should they be in the uh, game of dealing with homelessness and mental illness and uh, other types of things that um, uh, increase the the tension and uh, the possibility of uh, bad incidents. So I think that this has started a conversation. And according to polling, the president really is on the wrong side of uh, trying to 
figure out ways to move forward in a positive way. Okay. Thank you so much, all of you, for for talking about how this is going to play out, both in terms of the future of the West, but also the the echoes in different parts of the West. We're obviously going to come back to this because it's a massive topic, which has started so many interesting discussions about our own identity in, in lots of different places. But we've run out of time on this podcast. We have time for just one more thing, which is our bookshelf segment. Spencer, why don't you go first? What, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I would probably say Between the World and Me by uh, Tanasi Coates is really terrific. White Fragility by uh, Robin uh, D'Angelo is getting a lot of attention in the United States in terms of helping my, white Americans think about sort of their role in these issues. And I would uh, personally go back to uh, some of the earlier books like Souls of Black Folks by W.B. Du Bois, uh, Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. Really terrific reading. Great. What about you, Omid? To be honest, last year I, I read the best book in my life, which was written by Lawrence Friedman, who is uh, the professor of, of King's College in London. And in this book, he's referring to a bunch of amazing other books. These times I'm reading, because of his reference in that book, Time and Two Crosses by Bayard Rustin, who was uh, unfortunately not very known in Germany, at least, but who was a iconic figure of the civil rights movement in the United States, African-Americans and also of the homosexuals, being one of the most important theorists on, on nonviolent protests ever. So Bayard Rustin, Time and Two Crosses, must read. Great. Thank you very much. And Tara, what's on your bookshelf? I'm currently reading Les Exilés Meurent Aussi d'Amour. So that means The Exiles Also Die of Love by Abnou Shalmani. It tells the story of an Iranian family fleeing the revolution and coming to Paris and defining their new identities. Fantastic. And whenever I'm on the podcast with Tara, I always end up um, talking about French TV programs. So I'm going to carry on in that vein. And last time we talked about the Baron Noir, which is this amazing political series. More recently, I've been watching series four of the Bureau des Légendes, which is a spectacular espionage series, which I heartily recommend. Unlike in the last podcast, I won't even spoil the ending of it. We'll put links out to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media pages or ours, but above all, by heading to whatever platform you've used to download this from and giving us a good review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Spencer Boyer, Omid Nouripour, Tara Varma, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Mm-hmm.